Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Today we are speaking with Amy Rodriguez and Mary Ellen Kiesel. Dr. Rodriguez received her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Rochester in 2010. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. Prior to joining the Vet Center, she worked for the Department of Veteran Affairs at the Batavia PTSD Clinic for five years, serving as both a therapist and residential coordinator. This followed completion of a pre-doctoral internship at the Buffalo VAMC, where she was able to gain experience in working in both primary care and the Outpatient Behavioral Health Clinic. Mary Ellen is a licensed clinical social worker and joined the Rochester Vet Center in June of 2014 as a clinical social worker, providing readjustment counseling. She received her master's in social work from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1987. She has experience in chemical dependency, family and couple therapy, group therapy, mindfulness meditation, and is trained in evidence-based therapy for PTSD. She has run several groups at the Vet Center and currently facilitates a PTSD group for Iraq-Afghanistan vets and a group for spouses of vets with PTSD. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming back again this week. Today is a very serious topic for us, and we have with us two guests. We have Mary Ellen, is it Kiesel, and Amy Rodriguez. So I'm going to ask each of them, maybe Mary Ellen, you would go first. Would you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background, please? Sure. And again, thank you for having us here. Mm-hmm. I'm a clinical social worker. I've been practicing for 35 years, and I've been here at the Vet Center for over seven years. Um, I'm the daughter of a Marine, and I'm the wife of an Army veteran. Okay, thanks. How about you, Amy? How about a little of your background? Yes, thank you, and thanks again for having us. I am a clinical psychologist, and I have been here at the Vet Center for six years, and I have worked in the VA system for 10 years, and all of my my career as a psychologist has been spent working with veterans. Okay, thank you. And when we say at the Vet Center here, we are located in the metropolitan area of Rochester, New York. So for our international listeners, the Vet Center is a place full of resources for our veterans that have come back from service from any conflict at all. They can be very, very young and returned from the Middle East, or they can be some of our older, more stodgy veterans like I know and love from Vietnam, maybe even Korea. And do you still see anybody from World War II? The answer would be yes. Okay. All right. Even World War II. Uh, It's a great place in that it does not feel like an institution. It feels more like just a place you can go and find somebody safe to talk to, as well as get a lot of recommendations and suggestions on how you might live a better life and how you might get through some of the things that our military deal with it. So. September is Suicide Prevention Month, 
when we talk about suicide, I see statistics in a lot of places. I see them on TV. I hear them on the radio. I read them in the paper. I can even Google. I can Google military suicide and probably find five or six different places to find statistics, none of which are likely to agree. Some of it is because of the dating. Some of it is just where people get their information. So to start us out on a solid note, I wonder if either of you might give us some statistics about military and suicide, maybe especially in relation to those on active duty, how prevalent is suicide, as contrasted with our veterans who have returned home and are dealing with those issues of regaining and redefining their lives. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Kathy. And I think you raise a really important point, which is that you can find a number of different numbers from a number of different sources. So it can be a bit overwhelming and confusing when you look at the data. And we're going to give you the best representation of that that information that we can, um, starting with veterans. Good. And actually, this was just released last week. So it's kind of really hot off the press. The Department of Veterans Affairs 2021 National Veteran Suicide Prevention Annual Report was released. And so this is the most comprehensive data to date. And what it shows us is that in 2019, so it's backdated a bit, there were 6,261 veteran suicides. What that amounts to is that there were 17 veteran suicides per day. One thing that's come out of this is that it is 399 fewer suicides than there were in 2018, so about a 7% decrease in the numbers. Um, so this is this is really significant that there was that little bit of a decrease. In active duty, it's a little bit m- more difficult to, to get those numbers released from the DOD. I did um, find something that showed that in 2019 there were 498 suicides, showing that there was... That was about similar to, I believe, 2017, but still an increase since right. 2014. Um, and they, and you can go into that a little bit more and break down the numbers between active duty and guard and reserves. So if we look at this overall, there is this, this bit of hope that there were fewer suicides in 2019 and mm-hmm. than 2018, but clearly still way too many, still something that we have a lot of work to do on. And I think still something important that I think of when I think of numbers is that it's good to have numbers and it's also good for us to remember that every one of these people, every one of those 17 per day, it's somebody's family member. It's somebody's child, their spouse, their parent, their sibling. And just to really just hold on to that and how important. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth that even one person is still one person too many uh, in my book. And I cannot imagine the grief the family goes through for many people. There's a stigma attached to suicide. It's difficult for families to accept it. Sometimes different denominations and religious beliefs play into that as well. Just regardless, it is a very, very difficult situation when you consider grief. So it would appear, Amy, that veteran suicide is a little more prevalent. Now, I know you can you can make numbers say 
or skew them so many different ways. But if we just kind of look at them at face value, it seems to me that veteran suicide is a little more prevalent. Would that be fair? Absolutely. I think that it's about 50% higher than you would okay. see in a civilian right. in the civilian population. We know that in our post 9-11 veterans, it's one of the leading causes of death for them. And, and Mary Ellen later will talk about okay. some of the reasons right. why that might be the case. Have there been any common reasons for these high numbers? Oh, yes. To begin with, veterans have higher, higher access to firearms than the general population. And, of course, the number one leading cause of veteran suicide is through firearms. I think the next most important thing to talk about is the rate of mental health issues among military and veterans, military personnel and veterans, especially for those who've experienced some kind of trauma while serving, whether it's stateside or through a deployment to a combat zone. We've just celebrated the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 and Many um, National Guard units and Reserve units went to 9-11 to assist in the aftermath. And so even though that's a stateside deployment, it's very traumatic. Yes. Or a mobilization, actually. It's, it's still very traumatic. And, and these kinds of traumas can lead to depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. And all of those mental health issues affect how a person thinks about themselves they affect their interpersonal relationships. They can affect their ability to work. They can be very, very serious and lead to suicidal thinking. Um, in addition, certainly substance abuse issues play a role in someone acting on suicidal thoughts because it lowers their inhibition in the moment if they're intoxicated sure. or if they're high. Mm -hmm. Finally, I think it's important to think about the reasons that people come into the military and there's a subset of people for whom their life was difficult before they joined the military, and maybe they thought the military would be the answer to their problems. And as I said, it's a subset. It's certainly not, you know, the whole the whole of the military. But we do need to be aware that, you know, as with any job that people seek, people come with, with their own baggage. Right. You've actually added a few things to what I normally think of in that vein. Um, I have to admit, I hadn't considered why some people join the military, but that's true. They may find, like some look for a geographical change. Some may think this is a great lifestyle change. So that's definitely food for thought. Now, if we continue to talk about veterans a little bit, especially since you ladies work in the vet center and you are probably going to be dealing with veterans, that is probably another good reason why it's more difficult to track what happens with active military because they probably would be seen on bases by active staff. So let's focus on veterans for a minute, those that might come to you. If someone is considering suicide or that thought happens to flash through their mind or they're feeling desperate, and I know the two key words are hopeless and helpless, what is most easily available for veterans that might be having these thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So the first resource that I would give is the VA crisis hotline. 
Um, and there's a number of ways for people to access this resource. So there's a phone number, and that's 1-800-273-8255. And they just need to press 1 if they're a veteran. But we also know that maybe sometimes getting somebody to pick up the phone, even when they're in need of help, is really, really difficult. And so one of the th really great things about this is there's other ways to access that same resource. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if, if the phone call isn't something that a person can manage, um, they can go online to veteranscrisisline.net, and there's just a button that they can click on, and they can chat with a responder immediately, like like almost, you know, an instant message type thing. So again, if there's nerves about picking up the phone, they can talk online. And lastly, of course, texting, because that's a way a lot of people communicate nowadays, and they can text 838-255. That would be a really good starting point for getting assistance. Um, if somebody is in crisis and really in need of help because it's 24 hours a day, and they can also kind of direct them in the way of services and what type of services they're needing in that moment. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, there are a number of other services. So we at the Vet Center are one example of that. And we encourage people to walk in um, and, and kind of if they're in need and we can help get them to where they need to go. The VA hospitals have services they, that includes walk-in mental health hours at different VAs. The local emergency rooms. And this can be a hard one because oftentimes somebody right. doesn't want to go to an emergency room or their family mm -hmm. is really worried that if they took right. them there or called 911, that that would be an issue. But again, in those moments, safety is the top priority. So a local emergency room is absolutely a resource and it can get somebody onto the track of where they need to go. What type of treatment do they need? What type of medication might they need? And kind of right. get the ball rolling and keep them safe in that moment. There, of course, you know, just briefly in, in active duty military units, there are behavioral health services and units that they can go to. And then there's, an, for active duty, there's also Military One Source, which is a really good um, resource, as well as there's a, a website called Make the Connection. And it's a nice um, website where you can find a number of different resources to kind of address some of these issues. So th there's definitely not a lack of resources. There's a number of different avenues that people can take if they're and struggling And is there this a way. list available of these resources that, say, a family member could easily obtain? Yeah, they could. I think a couple of different ways that you could go for that is you could get online and get to the, the VA crisis hotline and they have resources listed. Also, the suicidepreventionlifeline.org mm -hmm. has resources. Okay, great. Um, so that's another one. I just wanted to clarify that we do see active duty here at, at the Vet Center oh. and we see National Guard as well. And I think it's really important for people to realize that that while we were under the larger umbrella of the VA, we are a separate agency from the DOD and a separate agency from the VA medical centers. So our level of confidentiality is pretty secure. So an active duty member of the military could come to the vet center and not have to worry that their commanding officers would have any knowledge of it we would not disclose that information and they would have no way of finding out we have separate record keeping systems. And I just think that makes it a little bit safer for somebody who's really needing care to come in. Well, that that's a yeah. terrific point because I also know that among the military, and I understand the rationale, I understand the whys because I've seen some of it in action, so to speak, in, in some of our vets, 
sometimes there is paranoia. So that would be a wonderful opportunity for someone who is in the guard, um, for example, to get help without it being without it involving their active duty portion of their service. Now, do other communities have similar resources? Or is Rochester really unique in that respect? No, there are 300 vet centers across the nation. Okay, super. And, you know, we do have eligibility criteria in terms of mm-hmm. combat service, military sexual trauma, Gold Star families. Okay. There's, there is a list of eligibility criteria, but I just really wanted people to know that they can come here without fear of any kind of retribution from their commanding officers. Well, I think that's an excellent point. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Do you think that it's harder for the military or veterans to ask for help or to reach out for help? And if so, why? Well, this is a great question because it absolutely is harder for them to reach out for help because of the stigma. One of the things that, you know, when people think of military personnel, they think of strength, they think of power. Mm -hmm. And, And this is part of the training that Um, anybody goes through in in basic that they need to keep their bodies strong, their minds strong. And especially as they train for deployments, they're told not to feel their feelings. Um, Maybe not in those words, but taking time to uh, deal with your emotions on the battlefield can cost a life. So the idea of talking to someone about problems you know, there's a stigma associated with that just in general in our country, but also within the military, it can be viewed as a sign of weakness. And I think that the military is very aware that there's this stigma and that they're really working hard in the units. And it does vary from unit to unit, but they're really working hard to change that by embedding behavioral health specialists in every unit. I think the other thing that comes to my mind is that veterans are incredibly generous people and their caretakers. Mm-hmm. I always know mm-hmm. that um, veterans will be the first ones there to help in any crisis and mm-hmm. even in just everyday life. And um, they yeah. often come into our offices and say things like, well, I don't want to take a space for someone mm-hmm. else who might need it more. And you know, my response to mm-hmm. that, and, and I'm sure my colleagues respond similarly, is we have room for everybody. You're not taking someone mm-hmm. else's space. So, you know, I think those are the big reasons. I did want to mention also that for active duty personnel, I think they really worry if they come for help that they might, you know, be on some kind of restriction where they're not allowed to right. carry their firearm. Right. You know, they may fear being not able to be deployed and they may even fear being discharged. And for veterans in general, they fear having their weapons taken away. Sure. Let's switch perspective for a moment. We talked about where or how veterans or active duty can reach out. Let's go to their loved ones, their family members that may have some concerns because they may be observing different behaviors. They may be observing moods. There might be anger. There can be an assortment, a variety of different things going on in the home. Are there specific signs that loved ones or family members can kind of watch for to know that there's potential danger? Absolutely. It's a great question. So there are a number of things. If somebody is talking about wanting to die or commit suicide, that's obviously a big one. 
if you notice that they're looking for ways or planning or maybe they bought a gun and that's not something that you would normally see from them, that, that's a planning um, behavior. If you notice a person is feeling or stating that they feel, I think you mentioned hopeless earlier, they're hopeless. They just don't feel like things are going to get any better. They don't see a way out. They feel trapped. And those are important warning signs, as is somebody that doesn't feel like they have a reason to live. They don't, don't have a reason to stay alive anymore. There's nothing keeping them from that. Another warning sign would be if you hear them talking about feeling like a burden to the people around them, their loved ones. And like you mentioned, just behaviors and habits. So being really in tune to any changes or fluctuations in um, behaviors and habits. So this could be they're using more substances. There's a change in sleep or how is there, you know, is there withdrawal and they're more with, withdrawn from people than they usually are or have been in the past. More anger or more anxiety or maybe more recklessness that is something that you haven't seen in the past. And again, these things can these things can shift for a number of reasons, but they could be warning signs and a reason to start to have a conversation and, and express concern. You also mentioned mood and changes in mood is, is also a significant one. So sometimes you'll actually see somebody go from being really sad and you might see their mood lift a little bit prior to attempting or committing suicide. And there could be a number of reasons for this. One thing is if they've been going along feeling like there's no way out and they're really struggling and they've made a decision in their mind that they're going to do this, you might notice their mood increase. Um, sometimes people might start getting some treatment, maybe start feeling like a little bit better. And so they might have a little more energy, their mood might lift and it can actually kind of give them the energy that they need to maybe act on some thoughts that they've been having and really been struggling with, but haven't even had the energy to, to make that step. So again, that's a little bit different to think, oh, well, they they were so sad and right. now they're, they're feeling a little bit better. But if you look at that in combination with some of these other warning signs. Hmm. I wouldn't think of that. I would think, oh, they're they're getting better. Exactly. So that's exactly. a good, yeah, that's a good good thing. Sure. And they might be, and oftentimes right. they probably right. are. Right. So if someone feels there's increased risk for their loved one, what do you recommend they do to help them maybe get some help? I think there's a number of things people can do um, to help their loved one, their friend, their colleague. In the VA, we have the acronym SAVE, S-A-V-E. Okay. So the S is for signs, which Amy has just talked about. So you're seeing things that concern you, mm -hmm. and you don't want to ignore that. You don't want to dismiss it. The A is for ask. There's a myth out there that if you ask someone if they're having suicidal thoughts, that you'll put those that thought in their head and they'll do it. But that's really not how it works. Asking can open the door to that conversation that can save someone's life. And if you do ask and the person says that they are, you know, then you just really want to V, validate what they're saying. I hear what you're saying. I hear that you feel hopeless. You don't want to try and fix it yourself. But you, you do E, want to encourage them toward treatment. And, you know, this would, you know, perhaps, you know, if they say yes, they are, then then I really encourage you to call 911 and, and get professional help right in that moment. Mm -hmm. If they say they've had the thoughts, but they don't have any, you know, plan to do it or they don't want to do it, but, but they just have the thoughts, you know, that might be a call to the doctor's office. 
usually what I tell people, if you're thinking you need to call 911, then call 911. You know, right. just, mm-hmm. just don't question that. It, it, you will never regret calling if it's not needed. Um, but of course, if it right. is needed and you didn't call, you know, that's a terrible yeah. feeling. I think another thing that people can do if someone says yes, or if they're thinking about it is just talk about removing lethal means. So maybe they have guns in the house. Well, can you keep your guns? I'll keep your guns for you for a while till you're feeling better. Um, or maybe they have a knife collection, which is very popular um, among veterans. Let me keep your collection until you're feeling better. So just, you know, removing the ways that people might harm themselves. I guess the other thing is, you know, if they say that they're feeling this way, don't leave them alone. Really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stay with them until help arrives. And if they're feeling suicidal, but they're able to say that they're not going to do anything, then make a plan with them. How, how are they going to get help? And again, this just goes back to what, what we talked about earlier, what, what family and friends can do for someone. Um, calling that Veterans Crisis Line or texting or chatting online with the Veterans Crisis Line calling 911, calling their primary care doctor, going to a VA or a vet center, just walk in, someone will take care of you. I think it's also really important, I feel like it's important to mention at this point that sadly sometimes we do everything we can possibly do and the person Mm -hmm. still dies by suicide. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that this this action is part of an illness and just like any other illness, sometimes people do die from it. And, you know, we're working very Mm -hmm. diligently to make sure everyone who needs help can get that help. Just like with cancer, sometimes people die from it. And so I just want to to reassure those listening that if you've tried everything you can possibly do and it still happened, it doesn't mean there was something else you could have done. Right, right. Right. I wanted to backtrack for a quick second. The A and save, the ask. How, what questions would you say that loved ones or, or friends could say to ask? Do you just flat out ask the question and be blunt? <laughs> yes, exactly. Are you having thoughts of suicide, right? Just in the same okay. way you would ask somebody, do you have a sore throat? You have a fever. Does something hurt? Yeah. So you're feeling depressed. Are you having thoughts of suicide? It's just matter of fact. Again, you're not going to put that thought in their head if it if it isn't already there. What you're going to do is open the door to have a conversation that may save somebody's life. I know for me, I always envision doing that and being met with confrontation or anger immediately. Right. That you have right. brought this question up. Should that happen, what do you suggest? Well, truthfully, that's not been my experience. I do have people in my own family who have committed suicide, and I have people in my family who I've certainly asked the question to, and I've asked a lot of people over 35 years in this business, and I've never had anybody get angry at me. I've had people say, thank you for asking. Um, I've also had people um, be very honest. Mm -hmm. I will say that sometimes people say, I'm not going to tell you. Because they fear that I will take some action. Sure. Um, now that's because mm-hmm. I'm a provider, but I think mm-hmm. if a family member mm-hmm. asks that question, it's very different. Or a friend asks okay. that question, it's very different. 
I don't know, Amy, what would you say to that question? Does somebody get angry for asking? I also have never had that experience. And I think it's all in the way that you approach it in that matter of fact way. I'll often say something like, you know, people in similar situations when they're struggling this much, you know, suicidal thoughts can come up and wondering if you're having those thoughts. So I, I would say the same thing. I've never had anybody get angry. Okay. okay. Well, good, good. Then I just will yeah. wipe that from my mind. <laughs> so if a soldier or veteran seeks help, what treatments are available and are these automatically covered for them? Yeah. So as we talked about earlier, there's a number of different agencies that a veteran can go to and the, the eligibility and whether they're automatically covered kind of depends. Right. Um, I don't want to get too lost in the details of this. I'll just generally talk about it. So like we talked about earlier here at the vet centers, um, we serve combat veterans, individuals who've experienced military sexual trauma and gold star families. And, and like Mary Ellen had said earlier, that could be people that are currently mm-hmm. active or in the guard or reserves. And for us, it doesn't matter how long ago they, they got out of the military. So somebody could have gotten out last week. And we still have Vietnam veterans walking in, in the door. So it, it just doesn't matter. They can come up and at any time. There is never a charge for services. Um, and there's no limit. It's just as much as the person needs to get back to where they want to get back to in life. Um, the VAs, and again, we talked about how we're part of the VA, but our own separate um, entity in the VA. And we, we have kind of like a specialized service. The VA's eligibility depends on a number of different things. So it could be their discharge status, time since service in the military service connection, um, income, those types of things. And so, you know, one of the things that I would say that I noticed here in our local area is that all a veteran needs to do is walk into one of these places. And even if that's not the place for them or that's not where they can get like the most comprehensive care, we really work hard to collaborate. So we know where to get that person to get what they need. And it's just taking that one step because it can be really overwhelming. And then once once we're in care in terms of types of treatment, there's a variety. So this can range from out, outpatient mental health services, which includes a lot of evidence-based treatments, which means that we know they, they work to help struggles mm-hmm. like PTSD and depression, substance use services, um, another um, issue that we know is very prevalent. It could be somebody needs a higher level of care, so it could be like a rehab or a residential program to an inpatient program until they get to a place where they can kind of be safe on their own. This also includes psychiatric services, so medication management, as well as, and I think a piece that's really important, is a socialization and a peer connection mm-hmm. component. Um, so all of our agencies locally have this. and. and it could be from doing socialization groups to groups where they're getting out in the community together and really reconnecting with people that they feel right. get them and they, that they have a connection with. Um, and that's so important. This is terrific information. And I think you've really helped satisfy the intention Stephanie and I had for this podcast, which was not only to increase awareness about the issue of military and veteran suicide, but also to make available some pieces of information that might cause people to think a little more about it and recognize how serious it can be and be more alert for ways they might help someone or support someone who is really struggling. So my last question, and this may not be an easy answer, those numbers, those statistics, are too high. 
for this population, for this demographic, what else can we, the collective we, or should we do to get these numbers down? You know, the answer to that is awareness, training, education. Last year before COVID, all of us here at the Vet Center actually took a community uh, training in suicide prevention um, under the acronym ASSIST, A-S-I-S-T. The VA has a national plan for suicide prevention, and it includes how primary cares, how primary care doctors work with veterans to, to have the veteran have more of a say in their care, which, which we know as more of a paradigm shift in healthcare. Um, instead of the doctor telling the veteran what to do, the veteran is saying, this mm-hmm. is what is important to me, and the doctor's listening. Right. Secondly, really looking at the science and tracking the data, and so we can find, you know, information about women veterans and specifically, you know, what women might need different than men um, mm-hmm. or LGBTQ veterans mm-hmm. might need in order to prevent suicide. And community outreach. We at the Vet Center would be happy to go to any organization that asks and do a training on suicide prevention. Every VA has a suicide prevention coordinator that's required by law, actually, federal law. And that suicide prevention coordinator has people on his or her team that can provide training to community organizations, churches, schools, Vietnam Veterans of America, other organizations in the community that are there to support veterans. And finally, I know the VA is collaborating with state and local agencies because we realize that this is this is not just one of us that's going to make this happen. We have to all be invested in preventing suicide. So I really appreciate, you know, that you have this as your topic on your podcast because I'm just going to go back to what I said a minute ago, awareness, training, education. Anybody can get that training. Um, You do not have to be a healthcare professional or a mental health professional. So as I said, that's going to make a big difference if people are aware and trained and they hear the signs and they ask, Mm -hmm. then they're going to get help for some. Mm -hmm. It's, It's probably the biggest thing that all of us can do collectively. And this podcast today is an example of that because anybody listening, you've you've provided the service now of raising awareness. Thank you for that. Um, it is very important to us. And as I mentioned, the veterans especially have a very, very special place in my heart, especially those from the Vietnam era, because of my affiliation with the local chapter, as well as my past husband's affiliation with them. I know these gentlemen to be the caretakers of which you speak. I have seen them in action. I always feel safe in their presence because I know that they're caretakers and I know their military upbringing. I can almost look at any individual and if they have this stoic look on their face, nine times out of 10, they've had military training. It is so ingrained in them. So it's very, very difficult, I think, sometimes for them to reach out, for them to admit that they need help. 
and to actually accomplish that. So if even in a very, very small way, each of us can just be a little more tuned in, that if we know someone is active duty military or is a veteran, and they seem to just kind of maybe need a friend, just be that friend, engage them in conversation, I guarantee they're probably not going to talk about their duty, where they did, where they were, what they did, or anything at all like that. But every single veteran has within them at least one humorous story that will make everybody in the room laugh. So be a friend, engage them in conversation, and be aware of those signs. And if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to them and asking that question, for whatever reason, find somebody who will. And chances are that's going to be another veteran or another active duty military. Ladies, I thank you both so, so much. The other thing I want people to take away from today is if you don't want to go to the VA, look for a vet center in your area because we heard here they have a different record-keeping system. Your engagement with them will be kept confidential. Take advantage of the resources that are available, whether you call, go online, text. If you just think you want to talk to someone, reach out because there are people there waiting to listen. Thanks to all our listeners. We hope you come back again next week. Hope you've enjoyed today's session. And remember to take care of yourselves. Self-care is very important as we all continue to live in grief. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.